0: you
1: Tuned in to Sound Science, a show for science curious music lovers, every first Monday of every month on Dublab Radio. For this special episode, I wanted to take a moment to think about what it means to be black in STEM in 2020. This year served us a global pandemic and then an uprising, and it's only July. COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement, with new momentum and a new overdue focus on all Black Lives Matter, are deeply intertwined. One of the most interesting connections I've pondered upon is how this pandemic forced us inside, not just in terms of our houses, but ourselves, priming a lot of us to see something we haven't been seeing and giving us the space to act.
0: And when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I be looking at you from the face down. One Mac
1: 11 even wound with the face down. Skimming, and let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a... Beyond the linearity of this narrative, my thoughts have been sprouting connections in all directions. I've been thinking about how black COVID-19 patients are dying at a much higher rate than their population share, most likely because of long-standing systematic health inequalities that pair with long-standing social inequalities, and how this movement puts us at even greater risk in terms of mental health and exposure. And I've been thinking about science, the thing that is eventually going to get us out of this mess, the thing that I've dedicated 17 years of my life to, and the way in which it has felled Black, Indigenous and people of colour for decades, which has sort of led me here. Black academics have been calling out racism in science, whether privately or publicly, for years. But in this moment, when people are listening and hopefully hearing, Black scientists, including myself, have turned up the volume, recounting behaviours ranging from blatant acts to microaggressions that they've experienced all over the world. Three things happened in the media in June of this year. The social media hashtag, hashtag Black in the Ivory, was first typed out on Twitter by Joy Melody Woods at the beginning of June. Melody and her friend and colleague, Sharday M. Davis, were spending the evening on Twitter and texting each other, and they were both fed up. Both of them are black women in communications research, Woods, a doctoral student at the University of Texas at Austin, and Davis, an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut. Now, since then, many other black academics have been using the hashtag to share their own experiences about being a black scholar at minority white institutions. Then on June 10th, hashtag shut down academia and hashtag shutdown STEM happened. This was an initiative from a multi-identity, intersectional coalition of STEM professionals and academics. They used these hashtags as a call to action for white and other non-black people to step up and do the work to eradicate anti-black racism in the global academic and STEM community. It signified a day to stop doing business as usual. For black people, the day was intended for people to prioritise their needs, whether that was to rest or reflect or to act without incurring additional cumulative disadvantage. And for everyone else, the day was intended for people to reflect on how failure to engage directly with eliminating racism results in the perpetuation of racism, and not only educate themselves but to define a detailed plan of action to carry forward. Then on June 22nd, a career feature published in Nature, one of the world's leading scientific journals, published a piece about what black scientists want from their colleagues and institutions, in which six black academic researchers spoke about the effects of racism on their careers, their advice to white colleagues, and their thoughts on meaningful institutional action. On the show this month, I'll be speaking with someone who is very familiar with what it's like to be a black academic. My guest this month, Dr. Chantal Oconqua, award-winning molecular biologist, passionate truth teller and transdisciplinary creative. It was such a pleasure to speak with her. We spoke about her recent experiences as a PhD student and her project Woke STEM, a digital space that uniquely intersects social justice and STEM while centering people of colour. Chantal also gave a TEDx talk about intersectionality in the future of science, which was so on point that I'm going to play a clip from that.
0: So, I'm a woman, and I'm more likely to experience sexual discrimination than others. If you didn't know by now, I am black. (laughs) Yes, I am. And I am more likely than not to experience racial discrimination. When you put these two levels of discrimination together, I have a compounded identity that is highly informed by this intersection. If someone were to come to me and say that, oh, like, let's, in- let's increase the number of women in STEM, well, you know, that's probably gonna mean many, mainly white women given statistics and what have you. What about black women? Because I am both black and a woman. Luckily, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw created a, a way of thinking about society's blind spots and the way that we fail to recognize people as whole. This concept is called intersectionality, and I'm sure many of you have heard of it before, but just to give some clarity, intersectionality is one of the ways that we think about how different aspects of discrimination and marginalization intersect to impact one person's identity and navigation through the world. This also brings into the context systems of power and systems of privilege. When we think about science, technology, engineering, and math, sometimes we think that these technologies all together bring truth and bring well-being for all. However, like I highlighted before, this is not the case. Without thinking about the ways that different aspects of our identity can lead to different aspects of discrimination, we start to leave people out because we're looking at one aspect of the identity and not the whole aspect. We need to build intersectionality into the cultural DNA of how we think about science, how we teach science, how we fund science, and who science truly serves. If we fail to bring this into the context of how we do science and all of the things I mentioned before, we will continue to have the problems that have been pervasive and leading to the current conditions that we have now. A lot of the solutions in society right now are pretty prescriptive and a little symptomatic. Let's bring more black people into our company because we're not doing so hot with the numbers. Or let's increase this number here, this number there. The issue is, these are not intersectional solutions. Intersectionality takes account of the systems that brought these issues to the first place. Systemic issues require systemic solutions. In order to get to the root of the problems that we have in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, we must take an intersectional, and systemic solution and approach.
1: One of the things she spoke about was about the three P's for intersectionality in STEM. Privilege, power, and passage. And I just wanna play a clip from the bit about passage because I think it's so relevant, especially in this moment.
0: The last P I'd like for us to consider is passage. Now, passage is, how does this particular solution, technology, science, the way we're communicating this, How does a solution pass the test of time? True change is sustainable. You can't implement a solution one time and be like, all right, we're good, we're done. It needs to pass the test of time. One quick example of this is one of the undergraduate research programs I was a part of. It was called the Mark Program. This program is very, very old and has enabled hundreds, if not thousands, of students who come from underrepresented backgrounds to earn PhDs. So we have to consider how sustainable and how consistent is the solution in centering intersectionality for better futures in STEM.
1: I really urge you to listen to the whole thing if you have any affiliation or interest in science. My interview with Chantel is up next after this. Dr. Chantal Okonkwo is a Nigerian-American, UCLA-trained PhD molecular biologist. She's also a sought-after keynote speaker, scientific R&D consultant, advisor, and creative science communicator. From giving a TEDx talk on intersectionality in STEM, to doing SCICOM in Tokyo, to being sponsored by the National Science Foundation to work with the Smithsonian's newest National Museum of African American History and Culture, Chantal is passionate about ideating, designing, advising and communicating intersectional solutions that creatively engage science and technology for a better world. She's also the founder and creative director of Woke STEM, a creative and Afro-futuristic space that intersects black joy, social consciousness, and science communication, while uniquely centering people of color. As a scientist with a background in the creative arts, her empathy-centered yet analytical approach reinforces emotional intelligence throughout her scientific expertise and allows her to provide maximum value for multiple stakeholder and audience types. Throughout her career, her guiding principles have harped on the idea of radical authenticity, joy, resistance, and reconceptualising what we think of as strikes to be true strengths and excellence. These have equipped her to be the creative problem solver, bringing unique impact to multiple spaces within and across STEM. Can you believe how amazing this woman is? This is The Interview.
0: Hey, Ywande. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great,
1: actually. Yeah, I'm really excited about doing this interview. How have you been?
0: I've been good. I've been good, you know, just taking each day one at a time. (laughs) That's all we can really do in this time. So overall, though, I have been good.
1: Okay, so (laughs) um, I've got... Some questions that I'm dying to ask you because I mean, just from the description I just gave, you're such an incredible woman and scientist, and so active in the community. And it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, especially at this time. So I just wanted to give the audience a little bit of context. First of all, I wanted to say congratulations on completing your PhD, doctor. What was the title of your thesis? And would you be able to give us three main take-home messages from your work?
0: Sure. Well, again, thank you you so much for the congratulations. I really appreciate that. So the title of my PhD thesis was very jargony, so hold on to your seats. Exploring the regulatory role of major yeast histone acetyltransferase GCN5 in pre-mRNA splicing wow. genome-wide. So that's the official title. Yes, <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot there. But really effectively, what I worked on in my PhD was to try to find relationships and unique connections between one part of a cell and another part of the cell. This is, and I actually get a little bit more detail because when I say part of the cell, I'm actually speaking about parts of our genome. I'm speaking about specifically parts of our DNA and the processes that govern how our DNA is actually turned into proteins. So, Effectively I was interested in the quality control mechanisms that help to make us who we are on the genetic level. So that's like the high level overview of the work that I did. And it was super exploratory. I got to use all kinds of cool equipment to do so. I did a lot of sequencing of RNA, did a lot of biochemistry experiments and I also got to work again with computational biologists to ask these questions. I'd say one of the major take home messages from my work which is in the field of like basic sciences, gene regulation, I'd say one of the main take-home messages on a very high conceptual level is that there are really unique relationships between the proteins or the molecules that help to bring about who we are on a genetic level to the actual processes that help us be who we are on a genetic level. And like these connections are not only just kinetic connections, meaning like they're connected by like the speed of reactions, but they're also connected by the location of some of these molecules as well as where if some molecules are even present or not. So there's all kinds of really unique systems that are in play that help us become who we are on a genetic level. And that's where the majority of my research kind of sat. For the most part i can definitely go into detail but it's super jargony and it's a lot but if you're ever interested in reading more i do have my thesis published online publicly for anybody to go and find out more and i'll definitely add that to the show notes
1: i think what's interesting about what we're saying is yes our genome is so tied to what makes us who we are but i think a lot of people forget how that actually is controlled by all of these other things that people don't immediately think of
0: Right, right. And you know, to that point, you can think of it almost like a society, right? So in our society, let's say we have 100 million people in our society. This is some random society we're speaking about. But within that society, there's diverse types of people. There's diverse roles that each person plays to ensure that society is running smoothly and is functional and positive. Now, some of these roles and people actually have to communicate with one another in order to ensure that society is functioning properly without those connections happening, you don't have a functioning society. So that's kind of the way our genome works. We have so many different genes that need to be expressed at different times in our life, at different times um, in our development, and maybe even in response to disease, in response to any outside sources. And without those connections, our genome actually can't really give rise to the proteins and the functions that we need to be who we are. So that's kind of the work that I did in my PhD, trying to understand those super duper duper specific connections that ensure that our, the organism I was studying, which is actually a brewers, mm-hmm. used to, the organism you used to make beer, which is funny, understanding how those connections can actually give rise to who we are. So we can use that information to inform how we, you know, really cure diseases or even create drugs. I mean, thinking about society, completing a PhD is in
1: very many ways, it is a solo endeavor and it is completely on you to get through that process but you don't really do it alone so within your institute and your lab there's a society there so i guess this is a nice segue into asking the second question which is how you would describe your experience as a phd student as an individual but also thinking of yourself as part of this academic society as well like the genome
0: yeah that's such a that's such a big question i'd say that my experience was um (laughs) you know i'm trying to be i'm trying to be very careful about what i say here because i really would like for the listeners not to take you know what i say to be negative or you know generalize it across all's experiences but i also would like to be very real Um, my experience actually not so positive it was a little bit more on the negative side and a lot of that was attributed to the culture of scientific academia, the culture of academia in general, as well as, you know, my presence as a super radically authentic, a super blackity, blackity, blackity girl in a place like UCLA, which is, you know, part of the ivory tower. It's very much UCLA's history is, you know, steeped in a lot. I won't go into detail there. And just just for an example, you know, there were black-based parties happening. You know, that's just to give a little flavor of, like, the culture and climate and environment of the institution, you know, just the being an institution like UCLA, um, but specifically being in the program that I was in. I will say positively, though, um I did meet some really amazing people, really, really amazing people that came from the most prestigious universities, research institutions, And, you know, that's kind of a given when you go to like a, a, you know, a pretty competitive university. However, what I found the, the best and the most interesting was that the people that I really connected with were people who had those creative backgrounds, you know, people who were in bands before or people who like. You know, we're super into art, which is something I love, absolutely love the visual arts and performance arts and what have you. People just had really unique backgrounds, but we're still bringing their full selves into the scientific discipline. That was something that I didn't get a lot of exposure to prior to my Ph.D. Um, so being able to be in community with those types of people was amazing. I would also say another positive part of my Ph.D. experience was the ability to really intellectually dive in to problems that were unsolved. It was really true discovery, like trying to find the breadcrumbs. First of all, understand if there are any breadcrumbs, create breadcrumbs and then connect them together to see if you can actually make a cookie. Right. Or a piece of bread. I'm not sure (laughs) what would be most uh, accurate here. So those are some of the positive aspects. But definitely my experience was tinged more towards a negative side, as I did, unfortunately, undergo harassment. There was sexism. There was racism. There was all kinds of bullying and the strange behaviors that I had to endure. Well, actually I didn't have to endure that. It just, you know, it happened the way it did. It was very toxic, I would say within the lab, outside of the lab, just in general, being who I was in that space. But overall, I'm really glad that I was able to make it through. And through my experiences, being able to transform that into, you know, a form of resistance, like the platforms I've been able to create, the communities I've been able to create, and the impact I've been able to create through like my speaking, through mentoring, networking, and community building.
1: Thank you for being honest about your experience, especially since, you know, this is a, a podcast that is out there. So I do appreciate how candid you're being and I completely relate to that experience as well. I think a lot of our experiences are parallel. I also radiate towards creative people and I have a, an affinity for creative things whilst also loving science. And as you described, the breadcrumbs and following them. So the way in which you've been able to bring that all together whilst doing your PhD is something that I really admire. And I would also you would impact the way that you do science because science is actually extremely creative and being able to develop those skills in parallel and not only come out with a PhD but then use these relationships and connections and experiences to build something like platform that, that you've created which we'll talk about is really admirable and the fact that you've been able to achieve that in this environment I think that just speaks so much to your black excellence and how incredible you are um, as an individual so thank you for sharing that. Time, time is a ship on a merciless sea, drifting toward an of nothingness until it can be retarded for its own destiny. Time is an inanimate object praying and praying and praying with no justification. I wanted to create an episode that departs from the usual format because this is such an important moment for us as black women and black scientists, and this platform aims to elevate science. But I couldn't continue with business as usual without reflecting on the ways in which STEM has felt to elevate us. Like I really do relate to what you were saying. So there is a career feature that was published in Nature, which I was really glad to see. It was published last week and it was entitled What Black Scientists Want From Their Colleagues and Institutions. And I actually shared that with my own PI. It really resonated with me because I have felt so let down now, actually more than ever. So I wondered how you would respond to
0: that question. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's another really heavy, heavy question. I say it's heavy because, as you know, there is no one solution. The trials that we face as Black people, as Black bodies, as Black entities within the scientific enterprise are not isolated just to science. They are really a manifestation and result of institutionalized systemic racism, sexism, all of the isms you can think of that are entrenched in the history of, dare I say, white supremacy across the diaspora, but specifically in the United States. So just to you know, give a framing mm-hmm. context for how I'd like to just approach that question. So the ways in which STEM has failed to elevate us, I'd say, mm-hmm. and I definitely can't speak for all of us, but I'd say you know, from, from my experience, I feel that At least in the research academia, there has been a failure to recognize the diversity of who we are as a people, as well as what we bring to the actual table. I know that, you know, the whole table analogy, uh, what have you, is something that's very popularly thrown around these days, but I'd like to just offer a deeper reflection of like what that table actually is. And I think that's where STEM actually is failing very significantly. Defining this table that they want everybody to bring themselves to, this table has really been framed by one lens, about one way that, you know, people navigate the world, about one way that we think about problems, about one way that we approach problems or how the solutions actually benefit and who. I feel that if we can redefine what that table is by including not only the perspectives of those who quote-unquote created the table um, institutionally, but those who have actually been at the background and in the forefront quietly and loudly contributing to the full enterprise of science. I feel that defining this table is one way that the scientific enterprise has failed to elevate us, silencing our voices, and, and not even just terms of representation. I'm speaking, you know, mm-hmm. even on the meta level of what we happen to Henrietta Lacks. I know that's a very popular example that's used broadly, given that she has a book written about her. Also, you know, aside from media, like the implications of what happened to her have been entrenched in how we think about data privacy, how we think about consent, and, you know, in the scientific enterprises as well as healthcare. So when we think about the socio-political implications of how scientific research or just science in general is performed, of how it's communicated, and who it benefits, I think that is a really strong area of opportunity for where the current enterprise of STEM can actually feedback and elevate us as a people. So there's there's a lot of different ways I can answer this question, you know, because STEM is a broad enterprise. It's not just academia. It's also we think about, you know, in Mm -hmm. research and development, in industry, in policy. There's so many ways that science has failed to elevate us, even on the level of like media representations, like who we as a society, if I were to ask you, like, hey, like think of like a scientist, I say the word scientist to you most likely and you know i definitely don't want to speak for you but most likely you know an image of albert einstein may come to mind you know so like that on that level like just the cognition just the the mental cognition of like who we understand a scientist to be like that is like so whack (laughs) and disrupted, And I feel like that's part of how STEM has failed to elevate us because those representations, not only in media, but in public education and how we think about science and policy, like just across the board has been silencing black faces, black voices, black bodies, black entities, black perspectives. So truly, I think it's, overall, just the silencing of us as a people across the board.
1: I definitely agree, I suppose, with that, this concept of exceptionalism, which I think is very loaded in itself, so that the Black bodies, the Black people that are in these academic environments, if we focus there, seem like an exception, um, which is also uh, another aspect of the the issue I think this idea of defining the table what that means and you know who's coming to the table and what you know what the significance of that is is um, really important and with the people who are in the room how are you actually treating them created Work stem which is a creative response to the lack of diversity social equity and inclusion cultures for minoritized people in stem while still completing your phd i'll point out again which is very impressive it's an amazing project it's so cool i'm going to put the link on the show notes as well to share with the audience and it really did catch my eye so i was hoping that you could talk a little bit about its inception and where you see it going now that you have finished your phd
0: yeah, for sure. And, you know, thank you for acknowledging Woke STEM. It's It's really been an amazing journey um, thus far. So Woke STEM began actually many years before it was materialized as like an actual entity, as like a website, as a video series or what have you. Woke STEM really was birthed out of like the experiences that I had as well as observations and experiences of my colleagues who are Black in STEM. Um, while I was an undergrad at San Francisco State University, I spent a lot of time, you know, surrounded and entrenched in communities that were more on the side of like organizers, community organizers and people who were just more aligned with activism in the, let's say, the more uh, upfront and outward sense, the conventional sense. And during my time in those spaces, I was typically the, the, the only scientist out of my friends. And although that I was always very much driven to, you know, social justice, to advocacy for those who can't speak up for themselves or who, whose voices have been silenced, I was realizing that, you know, there are issues in science that there isn't really a lot, at least from what I understood at the time, there, I didn't see a lot of like activism being centered around being organized around and it was just like all these issues were being swept under the rug they were just topics of conversation and it was like move on so over the years i was really trying to understand like how can i offer how can i be of service to those who are who are lacking voices or whose voices have been silenced in the scientific enterprise how can i communicate ways of you know, solutions or just how can I bring people together so we can ideate solutions towards some of these issues. I was also looking at the landscape and it mm-hmm. seemed really um, ashy to, for a lack of better words in terms of like, interventions and solutions and even just conversations. And I wasn't seeing a lot of people who looked like us. I wasn't seeing a refreshing new perspective that was going to engage those who are going to get into STEM in the future, as well as those who are currently in STEM. So over the years and during my PhD, I was really just brewing on this question as more and more nuances of the injustices across STEM, the lack of inclusivity, the lack of a socially equitable culture for those who are on the margins in STEM. I was really just brewing on the these questions and trying to understand what is the best way that we can not only bring this conversation to the forefront so that everybody can really engage, but also get people a lot more excited about engaging and creating solutions. I started to identify, you know, as I was navigating my PhD, as I mentioned earlier, I had a really, really tough time. I had a very difficult time through my PhD and you know, it, mm-hmm. I really had to lean into like resistance, like, you know, mechanisms of resistance, self-preservation, um, really leaning onto the, the idea of community and support in order to continue going. And this was also, one of the ways that a lot of my colleagues, friends, and those who were, I just identified as Black and STEM were doing so as well. And I was like, you know, this is really a unifying concept. And I think there's an opportunity here to not only bring these unifying concepts of authenticity, of resistance, self-preservation, of excellence in all iterations of excellence, as well as a refreshing new vehicle for presenting this information. I think there's a unique opportunity here. And so thus, Woke STEM was created. It really began as a community because I felt as though there are people who are Black and STEM, there's not a lot of us, but we are out here, like we truly are out here, but there needed to be some sort of a centralized community, there needs to be some sort of nucleator for us in this space so that not only we can know that each of us exists, as you mentioned before, you know, is a very isolating, a very isolating kind of endeavor. So not only to identify that, you know, we exist, but we can lean on each other to have those conversations that we can't have with our colleagues that we're sitting next to. Or, you know, in the event, you know, in these current times, as we're seeing the sensationalization of like black bodies being, you know, ruined on television, in the media, live, like we can't really have those conversations with our colleagues in our labs or what have you. So Having that space where we can be radically authentic with one another, we can lean on one another, we can vent, we can hear, we can, you know, praise one another for the small wins. I thought that there was so much power in that. I also thought that there was an opportunity for just generally science communication to be a lot more moisturized. (laughs) I really do hope for the world to be a more moisturized place. (laughs) Because actually this is just not it. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I really felt that there needed to be a more refreshing way of communicating science to us, right? And that's not to say that we don't understand science the way it's being presented. I'm saying that science needs to be presented in a way that includes everyone, not only perspectives, but also like who it relates to, And who it actually affects, because a lot of the science that's being communicated out there is, again, presented in one lens, that it affects only one type of people, one group of people, one type of income, you know, tax bracket, and that's just not okay. So I felt that having an avenue to visually represent science as a Black person, you know, producing the science, communicating the science in a way that's down to earth, that's dope, that's real, it's socially conscious, and it's actually relevant to who we are and how we navigate the world. I felt that there was a lot of power in that. So from an online community, it then materialized and matured into more of a visual platform for creating these really awesome videos. That was an extremely, extremely fun, creative, and just enduring effort. From my side, I guess from a more personal side, I felt very fulfilling because, you know, throughout my PhD, I was working in labs and, you know, doing all this research and I'm a very multidimensional person. I have a background in dance performance arts, music. So none of that was really being captured in the lab. And I felt like I'm not really bringing my full self to this space and I need to bring my full self to be like fully excellent. So Wilkstam also for me was an amazing avenue to bring in my love of music, my love of visual arts, my love of creativity and just like creative conversations into the forefront. So. From that visual platform, it then blew up into all kinds of iterations. It provided opportunities for me to not only, you know, um, have a TED Talk on intersectionality and STEM, but also produce like thought leadership where I was be able to be invited as a keynote speaker around the country for topics around science communication, as well as inclusivity, as well as science policy. I've also had the opportunity to work at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which wasn't directly a result of Woke STEM. It was really on the side, like my reflections to actually inform Woke STEM's inception that allowed for me to have that opportunity that was funded by the National Science Foundation. I've had so many opportunities that have come out of Woke STEM. And I think also Woke STEM has provided opportunities for others in the community to not only connect with one another, but find their own interests, you know, find the ability, understand that there is opportunity to bring yourself to the table, to create new tables and to actually, you know, bring your whole self into a space that provides new platforms, new opportunities for the next generation. So it's been a very dynamic project and there's a lot of different ways that I can go in the future. Right now, definitely taking a pause, slowing things down to refocus, also taking this moment to just, get quiet because the world is changing. And I do very much believe that there is a small revolution that's happening, at least in our society and our, in our public consciousness. You know, I definitely want to respect that Mm -hmm. moment and not just be moving forward quickly just for the sake of publishing social media or just being out there, you know, like it is the work that I try to do with Woke STEM is very deep and it's very serious work. Um, It may reflect on the surface, it's very fun and happy, and it, it is, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, like, Black joy is resistance, and Black freedom is something that requires rest, it requires reflection, requires rejuvenation. So in this time, you know, direction of Woke STEM is still unclear, but very much open to where it will go. And I'm very much confident that it's actually going to go some pretty significant places, given that up to this point, I mean, it's taken me to Japan. It's taken me a lot of different places. And it really started as an online like Twitter page, you know, so I'm really excited for the future of Woke STEM.
1: (laughs) Just the way in which you have shown through just being authentically yourself and not trying to separate out what's appropriate for science because of the dominant lens that science is usually viewed through the fact that you've brought all aspects of yourself into this space and then that has led to all of these opportunities is just testament to how important it is to be authentically you and being authentically you includes being a black woman and like imagine if we were able to bring ourselves to these tables. I also wanted to say uh, the audience will see when they go on the on the show notes and the videos. They are so sick. Oh, my goodness. I watched the last one and I was like, oh, my gosh, this speaks to me so much. I relate to this so much. And I just found it really powerful because... Science doesn't have to look the way it looks, you know? Also, like, younger generations of um, people wanting to get into STEM, that is really powerful because then you see something of yourself in it and then you relate to it and it changes your perception of what science means. And then you think, oh, okay, maybe actually science is something for me or maybe science doesn't have to look, as you say, ashy. It's like a moisturizing... I mean, I'm just so excited to see congratulations on all of the things that you've been able to do so far, but I think it really is just very beginning in terms of rest I think in this moment it's been really interesting to look at friends I have who have been focused on these issues not just in a moment but have been committed to it in the long term and I think that there is also a lot of eyes sort of turning to people and it's really nice to hear actually that you're not just rushing a response you're being thoughtful about what that response is because it's not just a moment if this is a real change it's a it's a marathon. It's uh, something we're going to be working on for a very long time. And I think that's a really that's good lovely. message to prioritise self-care and, you know, and making sure that we're rested. Because it's, you know, it's a lot of work and it's a long journey. Don't touch my hair.
0: When is the feelings I wear. Don't touch my soul. It's a rhythm I know Don't touch my crown They see the vision I've found Don't touch what's there
1: Come magic, I styling. Proof like magic, excellence. poof you need reminding. Getting run and losing shock. Sure. Ooh my word, she back again. You will never end the rain. We keep multiplying um so my last question is about radical authenticity so again it's incredible how authentic you are and um, how much of your whole self you bring to your stem practice or your practice in academia it's one of the guiding principles of work stem so i just had a, one question to ask you which is when have you been most radically authentic within the world of stem which is a hard question because we've just spent the last half hour talking about all of these incredible things you've done that we could pull examples from but is there another answer that you have for that like a moment a story that you'd like to share
0: (laughs) that is a very tough question to answer I know that I I probably in this moment can't like think of like the most radically Mm. authentic because it's really hard to even like qualify or quantify that but I can definitely think of you know a very strong moment where I've been very radically authentic within the world of STEM there was a time you know a few years ago where you know as i was going through my phd it's and, and you know there's a lot of data out here that shows this and maybe even um, anecdotes you may hear from friends to the listeners you know the phd like i said it's very isolating it's very difficult you know i think what is like mm-hmm. less than one percent of the world population have a phd or something crazy like i don't know it's it's just tough and you know given that toughness, not just tough in terms of like the work and the research it's also tough like on a mental level you know and so mental health is actually a huge huge, huge risk factor in the space of not only you know, a PhD, but within science, you know, academic science. So um, a few years ago, you know, understanding that that is an issue that we all, like that most of us like, have to endure while doing a PhD. And on top of that, if you are a person who comes from a marginalized group, navigating these spaces, is even an additional burden on top, you know, having to interface with what's happening in the world, moving through the world as a black or brown body on top of being in this academic space is even more traumatizing, even more heavy. And so you can imagine what that can do for the mental wellness of us, you know, those of us who walk through these spaces. So just a few years ago, I I had a friend who endured a pretty severe uh, mental health crisis. And, you know, during the time, at least for me, I was undergoing a lot in my program. I was getting ready for one of my qualifying exams. And, you know, these, these are the exams that basically determine if you can continue in the degree. So typically when you're going through that time, you're super focused. Like you are like shutting out the world. It's like, don't talk to me. I'm studying all day, every day. Like I'll talk to you in three weeks kind of thing. But you know, because there was a member of my community that was really undergoing some very severe mental, you know, health issues, I had to make a decision of putting mm-hmm. my people first before my PhD. You know, I had to communicate that to you know some members like in my community just so that they're aware, like this is what's going on. And like mm-hmm. I'm having to take a step back here just for a moment. That was a moment I felt that was very radically authentic for me because not only is being able to be open about like, you know, mental health and mental illness, I think things are changing, but not only is it like not that mm-hmm. conventional, not that popular to do or that politically correct, you know, but it's also like just communicating, like, you know, I'm trying to be here for my community. Like this is part of who I come from. I'm Nigerian American. I'm Igbo, you know, I come from a number of state in Nigeria. So, you know, part of who we are, like, I would even even say like diasporically, mm-hmm. as a people we're very community centric people. Mm. We're not very individualistic, at least like our cultural ideals. And so community is like truly a, a value, a very serious value. And I bring that with me wherever I go in the workplace, in academia, just no matter where I go, community is huge. I try not to be as individualistic as The prevailing culture Mm -hmm. of STEM tries to impose on us. And so I felt like that moment was a moment of radical authenticity, being able to just communicate the importance of I'm prioritizing my community right now because that's part of who I am, where I come from. I'm not going to shed that because I have PhD candidate in my name or, or something.
1: I think that the PhD experience isn't spoken about enough in terms of mental health because it is really one of the most challenging things I certainly have ever done. And the way in which you're expected to function, especially towards the end, is so unhealthy, but yet so encouraged. And I don't think that there is the encouragement to step Back for yourself, or especially for others. Like you are very much meant to be very driven and just get the job done at all costs. Like. I remember doing experiments at 2 a.m. in the lab because I had, you know, I had to or staying in the library for four hours. So I think that that is a really good example that I I thank you for sharing. Because to do that and step away from those expectations is really important because it kind of shifts things so it becomes more normalized. And I think the people who take those first steps to do that, you know, really contribute to changing what the culture Examiners. so I think that's amazing I did have another
0: example if I could share <laughs> I was <laughs> I was just thinking about you know my PhD Defense that I think was a really strong moment of radical authenticity not only for myself but the, for those in the room and for those who are witnesses to what happened that day so just as a background a PhD Defense is really like the very last step before you get the degree. You have to give a public oration, a public talk on your research, and you have to defend it because this is discovery. Like, this is new stuff that hasn't really been vetted through the scientific community, at least for the most part. So during the PhD events, typically it's your committee that comes. These are like the scientific advisors who've been looking over you throughout your whole PhD experience, maybe like four or five people. And then typically you can invite friends, family, you know, and sometimes people will invite like, you know, their mom, their spouse, whatever, and that's it. I felt that this moment was truly an opportunity for me to be the most radically authentic I could be as it was the pinnacle of my PhD experience so typically it's like oh like only invite like two friends like you know just keep it small and when people were saying this I was looking at them sideways like you trying to tell me after all these years of struggle <laughs> I bring no. two people, we do a little clap clap, have some cake, and that's it? Like, no, boo boo. Like, that's not actually. And also, like, I'm Nigerian. If any of y'all know how Nigerians are, we are like so extra. Like, we are very extra people. So. I was like, nope, I am bringing all of my people. It's going to be a party. It's gonna be like the most lit situation. Yeah, it's just gonna be lit. So basically for my PhD defense, um, there was about, I would say around a hundred people who were able to attend. These are people who are not scientists. These are people who are every day, you know, taking off from work, coming here on their lunch break. And, you know, everyday people with everyday backgrounds, I've never seen the room that black in my life. I don't think the institution has probably ever seen the room that black because if you walk around you see like the south campus and north campus the south campus is like you know the science side you rarely see black people like it's like a speckle and when you do it's like oh my gosh like you know you turn your neck real hard like oh my god what so like having that like conglomeration of like beautiful black faces that are young that are old like somebody brought their child but also just thinking about the moment leading up to that you know people are parking and then there's groups of like black people walking into this room i had friends afterwards text me and be like what was happening like what what was going on like i kept seeing all these black people i'm like you see so like that was a really strong moment for me being able to have these people come and witness with me you know the transition from being a student to an actual phd older and what even made it more lit at the very end is that my mom seriously came through typically afterwards you'll have like little <laughs> snacks light bites and carrots you know cake whatever no mom came through with like multiple platches of jollof rice we had meat pie <laughs> We had fried plantain, like, it was, like, we had to, and we had to go plates, okay? We had to go plates, so it was, <laughs> it was definitely a moment, it was definitely a moment of so much joy. People were crying, you know, during the actual defense, because at the end of the defense, you're able to, like, acknowledge those on your journey. I was crying. It was a mess, low-key, but, you know, I felt like it was very important for me not to stick to the status quo of being very like PC, like I want to take my advisor and like my lab, like nah, no, like I'm going to thank those who really carried me and supported me throughout this journey authentically and consistently. You know, I want to thank those who even put the idea into my head that this is possible, not that a PhD is possible, but it's possible for me to achieve despite not looking like what you know, is the majority or what's the status quo or despite not having the background, like I was not a valedictorian. I got Cs, Ds, and Fs, you know, like in science classes, but I have a PhD now. So it's like having those people who were really shooting with me in the gym, like truly, that was really important for me to communicate, not only to the audience, but for me to actually verbalize out loud so it was a very powerful moment. It was a very spiritual moment. It was a generational moment. Like both of my parents are there my brother was there and other family members were there. So having that moment happen for myself, but for those who were, you know, shooting with me in the gym to understand like, you know, the generation is actually shifting. You know, my parents immigrated to the United States and I'm first born in America. So like, it is a really powerful moment to come from being the first one born in my family in the United States and having a PhD, like that's huge. So
1: Those two things that you mentioned, community in Nigerian culture is so integral to what it is to be Nigerian, but also this focus on education and really trying to be the best you can be and to hear that you weren't good at science at school and yet you have a PhD. I was actually quite similar, like science wasn't something I was naturally good at, but got there. And I think that it's incredible that you were not confined by the expectations and this pressure that you feel to behave in a certain way and what's appropriate for science and what yeah, bring a 100 people, have the room filled with black people, people that have supported you. Your mom is incredible. Bringing in rice. I do if I missed it. Um, it's <laughs> a beautiful story because it's so authentic. So that's a huge inspiration. And, and like you say, a lot of people weren't scientists. And to have that be maybe one of their first experiences of that academic process and even if it's you know not necessarily gonna inspire people to go into science it inspires them to pursue whatever field they want to pursue which let's be honest a lot of fields have the same issues as we have in STEM so that's incredible I love that we also got to talk about that example because that I think is a really powerful way to to end and to hold in mind. So yeah, I think we'll end there. But thank you so much for being a guest on the show, Chantelle. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Ywande. I had so much fun speaking with you discussing with you some of these topics. You're an amazing host, and I'm just really looking forward to the audience to be inspired, something they can take away, share with others. I'm just really happy that we're having this moment of shifted public consciousness, so I'm really hoping the audience can affect that and honor that and hopefully something they can take away with this um, from this interview. Yeah, I'm really glad. Ah, 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 ah,
1: Shake, shake, shake. Uh, shake, uh we, get shake, we get it from my mama we get it from my mama we get it from my mama
0: we get it from my mama yeah yeah
1: i got melanin oh yeah i got melanin we got melanin that's the end of the show folks thank you so much for tuning in For show notes, go to www.soundsciencepodcast.com. There will be a lot on there this month to find out more about Chantelle and her work um, there'll be links there resources and where you can donate to support black organizations resources for mental health and support during this time there's also going to be a list of links to articles and books relating to the black stem experience and track listings um, the show will be archived on the dub Lab website in a few days and available as a podcast in a week or so until next time here's Cheryl Lynn playing us out with got to be real
0: what